0: As of yesterday, for the sixth year in a row, the World Economic Forum recognized Canada's banking system as the most efficient and most sound banking system in the world. Under the leadership of CEOs of Canadian banks, including that of our guest speaker, Canada was able to mitigate the drastic effects of the subprime mortgage crisis in the United States that eventually led to a global recession. While Canadian banks provide security within our country, its reach extends much further. Modern-day Canadian banks are better described as powerhouses, with operations touching every corner of the globe. Scotiabank, for example, is Canada's most global bank, with operations in more than 50 countries. Since 2007, the bank has made more than 20 international acquisitions worth about $6 billion. Scotiabank's 2012 annual report disclosed that 31% of its net income came from Canadian banking. The other 69% came from a combination of international banking, global wealth management, and global markets. The Empire Club is very grateful to have Rick Waugh here to discuss the financial services industry, its response to the repercussions of the global financial crisis, and its implications on both the Canadian and world economy. Mr. Waugh began his career with the Bank of Nova Scotia in Winnipeg in 1970 as a branch employee. And over the years, he served in the bank's treasury, corporate, international, and retail banking areas. In 1985, he moved to New York and was the most senior executive in the United States. Mr. Waugh returned to Toronto in 1993 and was appointed vice chairman of corporate banking in 1995 and then Vice Chairman of International Banking and Wealth Management in 1998. In 2003, Mr. Waugh became President and CEO. Last year, Rick Waugh was named an Officer of the Order of Canada for his role in strengthening the financial services industry in both Canada and around the world. Every world-class leader knows when it's time to pass on the reins. Mr. Waugh has announced his retirement so someone else can continue his legacy and also have a chance at being richer than they think. <laughs> Past presidents, members, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Mr. Rick Watt to the Empire Club of
1: Well, good afternoon and thank you for coming, Mr. President and members of the Empire Club. Um, you know, seeing that video uh, does make one very humble uh, to see the, the great speakers and, and the purpose of having a, a great dialogue. So it makes me very hum- humble, and I'm very grateful, uh, especially being a banker, though. Uh, you know, I do go around the world and uh, meet all of our CEO colleagues in Europe, the United States, and as we commensurate sometimes after the meetings with the beer, uh, you know, it's very very uh, you know, uh, heartrending that uh, at least a Canadian banker still gets invited to speak because uh, in most places right now in the world, if you're a banker, uh, you don't even go out at night. So uh, <laughs> it's, uh, in Canada, we do it better. So that's, that, that's just great. And, that. and it's to see the room so full, and I wasn't going to say this, but as I walked up, I was looking at to try to find out where, uh, where the room was, and that I saw that the economic club we were competing with. And you know, you never want to compete with another, uh, on a good uh, a business club. And then I saw the title. I said, We're really, really in trouble. And the title is How to Protect Your Prostate. <laughs> so, guys, stay here, close the doors. True. So, you know, we're really fortunate to have, have everybody here right now. Um, <laughs> and that's a fact. <laughs> um, so uh, I was asked to speak today and, and was suggest- suggested I discuss my career and, and certainly my time as the chief executive. Uh, the whole time, of course, has lasted 43 years, and truly you've seen the good and the bad and, unfortunately, sometimes the ugly And, you know, this last crisis, of course, is is so fundamental. But, you know, as a banker for 43 years, uh, and we're so many parts of the world, uh, it seems to be about 75% of my life. Um, So we could be in this room for an awfully long time if I did that, and I think most of you would be asleep or trying to go to that other meeting next door. (laughs) And so in the interest of of, of, of brevity, uh, I think I'll stick to one significant, because this is a club who wants to deal with issues. And, and it's a fairly narrow one, but I feel strongly because it's so important uh, to, uh, to where we've been and wherever we're going to end up as we go forward. And I am optimistic we are going to end up, but there's lots of things that have to be done. Um, because we are about to mark the sixth anniversary of the beginning of this current financial crisis. And it's been five years since the failure of Lehman Brothers, AIG, Bear Stearns, and the list, unfortunately, goes on. So for those of us in banking, it really was, at least certainly for, 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 from my perspective, the failure of Lehman Brothers is one of those things. First of all, uh, we all in the banking sector remember where we were, and I was traveling in Asia, and, you know, we had our concerns, but, you know, we've got a program of growing and going forward, and Asia's very much a part of it, but, of course, immediately had to get on an airplane and come home. Um, since the Bear Stearns problems, we had been worried about Lehman, despite the fact that all the rating agencies had still ranked it a, a single A rating. Um, so we uh, significantly brought down our exposure and went to zero credit risk and very little market risk. Having said that, like many financial institutions, we took a direct loss on Lehman Brothers, and it was not material, but it hurt. However, we still earned uh, that year a profit of more than $3 billion, and we still earned return on our shareholders' capital of over 16%, despite Lehman, and there were other body blows, as I used to call them, uh, that, that happened. But we got through that. And while Lehman deserved to fail, what made things much worse that no one really knew how to resolve a complex bank that was so interconnected with global markets. In fact, Lehman Brothers wasn't a bank. It was an investment bank, but it wasn't a commercial bank or what we think in Canada is a bank. But the consequences of Lehman's collapse, the direct costs, but far more importantly, the indirect and what are going to be some very everlasting costs to the financial sector and the global economy are truly staggering regulators, policymakers, and the financial industry are still working on repairs and reforms. Now I have spoken about the unintended negative effects of regulation on the banking sector, our financial markets, and the world economies. Growth many to- and the growth that is happening on world economic growth uh, that is occurring and I'm afraid it continues to get worse. So the recent emphasis on leverage ratios amongst regulators around the world, which confirms my view on this, and we've got, st- we've got a real danger of getting stuck between the right balance and in the solutions that we have to pursue. So what I really want to talk about today is one, is how is regulation is having a transformational effect, yes, on the financial industry, but by extension and, very importantly, on our global economic growth. And how we collectively must strike the right balance between capital buffers, good assets, liquidity, risk culture, and management to get the balance right so we can get back to normal growth rates. And thirdly, and for me as a practicing banker, how the quality of a bank's assets is the number one factor on safety and whether banks will fail or not. And that depends on the quality of the risk management that goes on in that financial institution. And that depends very much on what is a strong risk culture, which is based on values, accountability, and the right incentives. We all know banks play a fundamental role in the economy. You entrust us with your deposits, and we put those deposits back in the world, in the system, making money available to finance business investments, innovation, and most importantly, the creation of jobs. It involves the proper management of capital, liquidity, and risk, and I think the operative word is management. This process is essential for functioning markets, and trust in the safety and the efficiency of the system is essential for growth. Now, through the course of the financial crisis, this trust was broken. And as a result, and in an effort to restore confidence in the system, regulation has changed and increased significantly, especially as it relates to capital, leverage ratios, and very prescriptive rules and regulations. The problem is, capital and leverage ratios only tell part of the story and only solve part of the problem. Now, for the past several years, I've been the vice chair of the board of the Institute of International Finance. The IIF is the world's only global association of financial institutions. Today, we have almost 500 members of all the major financial institutions. The IIF recognized at a very early stage in the financial crisis that the internal risk management practices of banks were a major contributing factor. The IIF put in place a research program to develop and promote sound practices to monitor its implications, and the member nations contributed their most senior executive officers to help lead this recognition of this research. And this came when included as as the output recommendations on risk management, recommendations on compensation, liquidity, accountability, transparency, and I can go on with several others. Now, I had the honor of chairing this committee, the Committee on Governance and Industry Practice, which is the responsibility for the ongoing research, the continuing research on this issue, which is so important. We strongly advocated... That the improvements in a firm's own risk management practices are as important, if not more so, than strengthen regulation and achieving greater financial stability. You need both. Force f- focusing on capital and leverage can have unintended consequences. It's like trying to improve road safety by requiring the banks, requiring the cars to have more and bigger airbags without taking into account the driver or the passengers. Eventually you have so many airbags that there is no more room for the passengers and the driver can't see out the window. The car cannot perform its function properly even though they've put in these safety buffers. And you've done nothing really to prevent the collision, perhaps because of airbags, airbags only deploy it once it's too late. This recent issue on leverage ratios and an over-reliance on capitals bring these issues to the forefront. They dictate capital levels, but they have not historically accounted for the level of risk in a bank's assets. And it's the quality of the assets held by the bank that matters more than anything else to its safety. And this has been proven time and time again. Leverage ratios and the original what we call Basel-based capital rules treated a government-backed home loan the same as they treated a subprime mortgage security. That, of course, encourages stockpiling of risky assets to achieve a higher return on capital, exactly the kind of behavior that led to the financial crisis and the collapse of Lehman Brothers. So what is the result of an over-reliance on capital and new leverage ratios. Well, it's clear to me that there's a direct impact on economic growth and at a critical time. There is a debate amongst regulators, policymakers, economists, and the industry about how to increase financial safety while yet ensuring economic growth. Studies vary in the estimates of how much the regulations will affect growth, but they all conclude that the regulations will come at some cost And I submit significant cost. Regulators and some policymakers say it's worth that cost, so we never have to go back to this financial crisis again. But in fact, the G20 has recognized the importance of this issue and is currently studying the effects of financial regulation on the availability of long term investment financing. We need this examination to continue, the debate to be continued, and to be enhanced. Yes, none of us want a global crisis, but we do all want a return to economic growth and job creations. Now, let me give you a clearer sense of exactly how an over-reliance on things like capital and leverage ratios can directly impact growth. So according to our survey conducted by the, Institute, the International Institute of Finance, regulation is having a transformational effect. And some of that is very good and very necessary, and it's arguably greater than any of the market forces banks are facing them. In response to regulatory requirements for mark capital and, and liquidity, 44% of the banks that we have surveyed in our, in, our, in our institute are now exiting activities. They are exiting portfolios, they are ex- exiting markets, and they are exiting geographic geograph- geographical 44 percent in fact we at scotia bank we benefited very significantly from their exits we bought e-trade because of the problems of e-trade in the united states dundee wealth just recently ing direct as ing now has to do things from their european base and of course we bought several banks several banks internationally at um, as they exited business and i believe there is still a lot more to come Let me give you two other examples just very recently. Last month, Barclays and Deutsche Bank announced far-reaching measures to meet growing capital requirements. In the case of Barclays, they will issue common equity that will dilute shareholders by close to $10 billion, and they also plan to shrink their loan book by over $100 billion. We know the UK economy has struggled and still emerging from its recession over these last five years, something that Mark, Governor Carney, uh, is concerned about. This will not make it any easier. Meanwhile, Deutsche Bank plans to reduce loans by nearly $350 billion. That's roughly equal to the economic output of Denmark. These are loans that may have gone, either directly or indirectly, to help spur business investment and to create jobs at a time when we dearly need it. Fewer loans to businesses and enterprises, though, is just part of the question, a part of the uh, the equation. High-skilled, high-wages jobs are being shed, not by the hundreds, but by the tens of thousands. Urban centres are being weakened through the loss of quality head offices, jobs, and supporting jobs in IT, professional service like legal and accounting. Banks are exiting countries at a time when businesses need capital, uh, need access to global banks to facilitate trade. And of course, it's hurting shareholders. Banks are some of the most widely held companies, and their performance affects millions of people, individual investors to major participants of pension funds. And of course, We're not an island. What happens in the UK, Germany, and the US matters to us. Not just because slower growth in these markets means less demand for Canadian businesses, because these banks lend to businesses in other markets. It affects us all. We have and we cannot go back. We are all interconnected. Banking across borders did facilitate the great push of globalization over the last several decades. And therefore, it facilitated the rise of our standard of livings and so many others. It has led to the development of emerging markets and the widening there of the middle class in those markets. And they are driving global growth today. And banks decide to exit markets, it does mean less choice. It does mean reduced competition, less liquidity, higher funding costs for business and customers, and so has a lot of unintended but critical consequences. So how do we strike the right balance to ensure safety and soundness and economic growth? Well, 43 years is a long time, and three or four crises Maybe I'm a slow learner, but you do learn. The best buffer that I've seen is a crisis, and I, in the bank, have gone through, as I said, several of them and survived. And it's because we've had constant profitability, it's because we've earned a good return on our equity, it's based upon the fact that we could do it, it's because we had really great assets, high quality, and I will also submit well-managed. Being well capitalized is incredibly important to ensure that necessary condition of trust. But I can tell you from experience that finding the right, benefit, right balance for us as Canadians and our Canadian banks has benefited us all greatly. Pre-crisis for Scotiabank, we were sitting at a high tier one regulatory capital ratio under Basel II standards, way, way well beyond the regulatory requirements at that time. Matter of fact, it was so high enough that I certainly recall that several of the the Bay Street and the Wall Street analysts were saying, we've got so much capital, why don't you buy back your stock or why don't you give us a big dividend? Why don't you do that? You've got too much capital. But because of our high capital levels, but most importantly, the quality of assets behind the capital and the return that we were making on that, which return on equity was was in the high teens, for our bank, and I'm very proud of this, we were the only Canadian bank and probably one of the few banks in the world that did not have to issue equity during the crisis period. And more importantly, or just as importantly, we were able to deploy the capital to take advantage of what was going on in a number of strategic exemptions. It was mentioned, the number, I've got a more up-to-date number, and that since the crisis, we made 40 acquisitions for more than $13 billion, and at the still time, grew our loans to portfolios of our customers, retail, small business, big business, and for our shareholders, continued to increase our dividends. But in the case of Lehman now, At the same time as this crisis, their capital was measured by the leverage ratio. And in fact, they were quoted and were claimed with their single-way rating as a very high capitalized bank. They looked very strong. But the assets on their books were very risky, so risky that they were unable to sell or use them, use them as collateral to the central bank, or to gain liquidity in any manner they could. Nobody would touch them. It was the quality of their assets, even though they were supposedly rated AAA. Capital as defined by regulators was not the problem. Lehman did not fail because of the lack of prescribed regulatory capital. It was a lack of liquidity, which which immediately caused the crisis. And time and time again, when a bank fails, it's because they do not have access to liquidity, and that's because they don't have the right assets and the right management, and that's why they fail. So this recent focus on leverage ratios by officials around the world is therefore troubling if they're going to rely on that. It's troubling because there is no agreement on what the ratio is, and again, most importantly, it doesn't measure risk. Now, we can all understand and support the motivation to have more tools to help avoid the cross-crisis. And there is no doubt that regulators have been worried, even under the new Basel III capital rules, that individual banks are measuring risks differently and the formulas are not totally consistent. Care is needed in using these new and sometimes old measures so that the riskiness of assets is not lost and any effort to increase transparency is not muddled By the fact that we'll have different jurisdictions requiring different ratios and management will make different judgments. It does sound confusing, but it's very simply. We need capital to give comfort and trust, but it is the quality of the bank's assets that generates profitability and protects it from and needing to use capital at all. Capital is there after you've made your mistakes. Prevention is the best medicine. So, to me, the quality of assets does, does depend on the quality of what we all call is risk management. That is why developing a strong risk culture and expertise within each organization is so important. If regulators and policymakers spent more time working with the industry on building this strength, Versus continue to add on complexity and fragmentation in the regulatory environment, I believe we'd be making more progress, we'd be making better progress to avoid the, uh, the crises, and yet at the same time to generate growth in our economies. We all share the same goals to make this world a better place for our children, our countries, and our economies. So in order for banks to help economies grow, A capital level of risk must be taken, a certain level of risk must be taken. It's how these risks are managed that does make the difference. Those in the the private banks who get risk management right will thrive, those who don't falter, and that's what history really tells us. So what does it take to get the risk management right? Right. Well, risk management refers to all the different parts that ensure a financial institution is run safely and soundly. One of the key elements of risk management is establishing this thing we call risk culture, where it's the tone at the top and then gets embedded every day in the culture of the organization right throughout. You need to have the proper incentives to support the right behavior. It takes the right people who are well-trained, customer-focused, and who also have, individually and together, strong personal and community values. It's how we behave and execute on the policies and processes in place. Every large, modern financial institution has the most sophisticated risk models and rules. But as we've seen, not all of us are good at managing these tools at managing these risks we're using the tools that the models provide. That's because the human element, the culture of the organization, our values, and our understanding of customers plays an essential role. It's the people using the tools that determine how well the tools will work. Providing credit or investing is an art. It's not a science. It's not a computer model. If it was, there'd be no credit no market losses, no crises, and of course, we'd all be richer than we think. (laughs) When I attend the meetings around the world and in my role at the IIF, I often remind myself when I hear things and them that I've been most fortunate to be one of the few CEOs that was actually a branch manager or a credit officer. I know what it's like to sit across from a customer and assess whether or not they really will repay the loan despite what appears to be a good job, great collateral, or a nice smile. And that's where value and judgment come in, because I think we all know the toughest decisions are rarely black and white. They are usually in the gray. And how we rely on our training, our values, and our culture is how you make those right decisions when you're in the gray. So where are we? And what is the financial industry doing? Are we making progress? So the IF regularly services financial institutions around the world to get an up-to-date picture on the state of where we are in the industry. This year's survey shows that banks around the world continue to take a greater focus on risk culture and risk management and the importance of the safety of the financial system. Chief risk officers are now reporting directly to their CEO's with independent access to the board. This is something, of course, by the way, that most Canadian banks have always done, and most of us consistently over decades have outperformed our international peers in forms of credit and market losses. We've known for a long time that's a pretty smart thing to do. So can regulators and policy makers work together with the industry on the issues of culture, values, and the tone of the top? Sure they can. However, I would argue strongly they remember the principles and let the management do the management versus prescribing rules. In conclusion, issues of trade, globalization, and regulation are having this transformative effect on financial services and other industries, and indeed on financial markets and the global economy. We are in the economy still in a very delicate period with little ability to absorb more challenges. The private sector, the banks, must be part of the solution and not be continually being locked up in jail. These are complex challenges and regulators, policy makers, and the financial industry and all other interested parties must get together to find the right mix and it is all about mix and balance of capital buffers, good assets, good liquidity, good risk management and culture. We need sound principle-based supervision. We've had that for over decades uh, in Canada. Rather than prescriptive rules, which are now being instituted globally and affect us here also in Canada and involve the capital levels, the leverage ratios, none of this will prevent the next crisis because we need to balance the need to protect your savings and yet the needs for banks to perform their essential function of providing for investment and growth. You know, one reason Toronto truly is a world-class city today, because it is ho- home to well-managed banks who have remained profitable by embracing the right balance of capital, risk management and values. Most importantly, Our banks have maintained the trust of our customers and shareholders. In fact, as was mentioned, the World Economic Forum just named the banking system in Canada as the soundest for the sixth year in a row. So ultimately, like all things in life, it comes down to finding the right balance. Our collective future and our prosperity depends on the ability to collaborate and to find the balance, which, of course, for all of us here, that's the Canadian way, and we do it well. So thank you very much. I think
0: think we have some time. We have about 10 minutes for uh, a few questions and answers. Um, So if anyone has a question, I believe that there's microphones roaming around. Uh, please uh, put up your hand, and I, I'm used to doing this, so I'll, I'll get it started. There's a bunch of students over there, uh, Mr. Waugh, and uh, you've been in, in the industry and, and in a leadership role for 43 years. What piece of advice can you give to uh, a young person uh, that is embarking on a career in leadership?
1: Well, first of all, they shouldn't get ahead of themselves. <laughs> I never ever in any of, uh, I didn't join the Bank of Nova Scotia because I thought I was going to be there at the CEO. I had goals, everybody should have goals, but you've got to be, you know, take them one at a time. And if you take them one at a time, you do your best, you work your hardest, and you've got the skills, it's funny how life starts to take care of itself. And the only really probably a little homely out of it I chose Bank of Nova Scotia. I was fortunate. We were all, all fortunate back in the 70s. We all had multiple offers, and we had some choice. It's a lot tougher nowadays. Scotia Bank allowed me and gave me an offer that I had no money, but I did want to hitchhike around Europe. And so they said, okay, we'll do that. You can go back. You can go and hitchhike, and you can come back, and most importantly, you can work in Winnipeg. So a couple of buddies, we went around, and sure enough, came back to Winnipeg, Life was good. started out in a branch. You can still count cash with the, the thumbs. Three months later, you get a phone call from Toronto. And, of course, Winnipeggers and Toronto, you know, <laughs> blue bombers. Um, and I really, other than going to Europe, was the first time I really got out of Winnipeg, the first time almost I was on an airplane. Anyway, I got this call on Monday to show up on the following Monday in Toronto to take my new assignments in the investment department. Well, I was dumbfounded. Well, that wasn't the deal, and this was only after three months. But, you know, and this is my advice. I thought about it young, single, loved my job, loved Winnipeg. There are times you do have to get out of your comfort zone, and that's that sort of gray area, you know, where you do whatever your family says or says about values, your community, so you take a chance. So there are going to be times in your career, again, yeah, you can reach for the top, but you're going to get frustrated, take it one step at a time, but there are times. You get out of your culture zone. So a little bit of a 43-year-old homily on that one. So homily or whatever it is.
0: I believe we have a question over here.
2: Hi, Mr. Wall. Andrew Addison from Fleischmann Hillard. Actually, started my career uh, at Scotiabank a number of years ago. So it's really an honor to. Oh, you to can to see the potential today. all over you. <laughs> <laughs> you talked a little bit about uh, government helping out with risk management, um, but also touched on the threat of getting overly prescriptive. I'm just Wondering if you see the risk of too much prescriptive interference as greater than no, uh, no guidance at all, and if you have any thoughts on concrete steps government can take to actually help with risk management.
1: Yeah. Well, again, it's about balance. So, yes, we can always improve our processes, our policies, and another, another advice, always be willing to take advice. So that's good. But we have gone so far over the way that they are getting into very prescriptive rules on actually how to run the bank, how to make decisions on what assets to lend. Uh, what is your strategy? And this is going to boards. And, it's, and, and this is not OSFI. is part of this great pylon, you know, the, the, the Financial Stability Board, which is headed up by Mark Carney, by the way. Um, just a side view. Um, but, um, you know, so there, it's the pylon. So it's not an either-or. It's the balance. And so much of our management time in Scotiabank, and I'm sure every other bank, you know, our talented management, who I think have done just an absolutely great job, are spending huge amounts of time on process and rules. I don't know where they get them from. And and, and they're good people, don't get me wrong, but how do they know what the right strategy of a bank is? And how are they going to... Don't forget regulators said lending to sovereigns was zero risk. That was right in the Basel. Zero risk. And, of course, those that did lend to Greece, those that did lend to the city of Detroit or the state of California, pick your sovereign. Sovereign risk is risky. And now they want to go back, and they have the policy makers say, let's go back to the leverage ratio because it's just all assets are the same. So that's the message. And that's where you have to get into. Let managers do their risk. Lehman Brothers should have failed. It was a failed bank. Because they made bad decisions on assets, not liquidity. So banks should be allowed to fail. Now the problem, interconnectedness, you've got to figure a way uh, how do you bring down you know, such a complicated wasn't a large bank and scale things. It wasn't too big to fail. It was too interconnected to fail. So you've got to talk to people and figure out and then make sure bad management gets dealt with quickly, properly incentivized, but let banks manage themselves. And that's one been one of the great strengths in Canada that we had principle-based supervision, not over-prescribed rules.
0: Thank you. I believe we have a question over here.
1: Thank you for your delivery, uh, Mr. Watt. I know very little about finance and banking, but if Canada is such an exemplary banking system, why aren't there more copycats? That is a great question. So I mentioned when I sat around having beers with these, my colleagues of European banks, I am stunned that nobody's ever turned to me and says, well, Rick, how did you guys do it? And why don't we come and, 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 and talk to you about it? So even in our private sector, they haven't done it. And then I remind them, well, you know, I grew up learning that made in America was a pretty good thing. But, you know, I think when it comes to banking, I think made in Canada is probably a better thing. And that is not to be boastful and prideful and what have you, Come up and learn, and very few, some do, come up to learn, and and, and there's a whole bunch of reasons, you know, whatever. We're blessed for a whole bunch of reasons, Um, but to me, um, you know, there's only one other financial center in North America right now. The first one, of course, is New York, but the only other financial center of any meaningful is here in Toronto because we have the banks, we have a great legal profession, a great um, uh, accounting profession, I'm not political, you know, but the country's in pretty good shape fiscally. Monetary, you know, not bad. We'll see. You can always be judgmental on that. And also, it's a great place to live. You know, and we do have a good community-based way of living. So I don't have a good answer why people aren't coming here. I know there's all these incentives. They're getting head offices in Ontario, which is a great thing, because, you know, all you, many of you work with us, and you give back to your community, in many, many ways, it's just a multiplier. I think that's one great failing of a political process that the politicians aren't working at keeping these, uh, you know, head offices. And it goes beyond, um, you know, banks. We used to have the great beer industry. We used to have the great steel industry. You know, beverages. You know, it goes on. We got a great telecommunications industry. I'm not going to get into that debate. And the re- Where are our head offices going? I'm getting off topic here, so (laughs) I was told not to do that. (laughs) One
0: last question in the the
2: corner here. Andrew Yu, independent human resource consultant. Let us suppose that after this event, you will be taken to St. Petersburg, Russia, whereby you will have the full and undivided attention of those 20 national leaders for approximately 30 seconds. What would you be telling them in those 30 seconds?
1: I have been in a number of those meetings. Michael will, uh, uh, Mike not standing. Uh, You don't usually get 30 seconds when they start talking. (laughs) And then when you do get your 30 seconds, and I've had quite uh, a number of times had the opportunity with the crowd that you said, 30 seconds, I really don't think they're listening what they are listening to is public opinion they want to get elected and i understand that totally completely they are listening to the media who you know the biggest thing we need to do when we watch media now is got to be breaking news so it's pretty boring to talk about risk management and all these kind of stuff and and so it so the the, the 30 seconds i would say is listen carefully and listen and be collaborative with the private sector listen what they have to say Take those compromises you have to and do it. Unfortunately, and again, I don't want to get political, but we all remember the meeting in Pittsburgh, G20, when the United States president said, I'm at war with Wall Street. Talk about a civil war that has no good outcome. I mean, why would you be at war, with which is probably one of the core you know, financial centers and strengths of that economy. It's got to be fixed, but to actually go to war on it, that has set a mindset with regulators that they, when I talk to, and you know, our regulators are good people, and I say, they say to me in these meetings, we have been entrusted by the leaders of our countries to make sure this never happens again, period. There should be a comma, and still maintain growth, jobs, and prosperity. We don't get to the second side. And that is, I think, the fundamental problem. And even my answer now is way beyond 30 seconds, so I would have failed again. So <laughs> thank you very much.
0: Please welcome Dr. Gordon McIver
2: to give the appreciation. Thank you, Noble. Mr. Waugh, Scotia Bankers, Uh, Colleagues from the Empire Club of Canada, ladies and gentlemen, when I was uh, asked to do the appreciation today, Mr. Y, I started reading the history of Scotiabank, and it really is quite amazingly uh, intense and interesting. I think most people in the room, certainly most uh, business people, know that is our country's second oldest Canadian bank, opened for business almost exactly 181 years ago, uh, 181 years ago last week. Almost didn't get off the ground because of its main rival in Halifax, but by the time you joined the bank in 1970, as you mentioned, it had become the fourth largest financial institution in the country, often referred to, as our President mentioned, Canada's most international bank. It was also uh, true to its maritime roots. It was the first bank to begin opening branches outside of the United States and the United Kingdom and made it very international. So not surprising that you uh, sit on international organizations today. Now, our President mentioned your Winnipeg roots. Uh, While Winnipeg was perhaps a surprising launchpad for the future President and CEO of a bank with such a strong maritime history, it certainly was a a city that appeared to be an excellent training ground for many of our top executives uh, in the last 40 years in Canada. Uh, It's produced uh, media, energy, financial CEOs uh, in many, many instances, and uh, I think they even started referring to it as the Winnipeg Mafia at a certain point. What's interesting about all this is some people rise to the position, the top position in a corporation as a total surprise to everyone around them. The people say, where did he come from? He must have come up through the middle, whatever. But this, I don't think, could ever be said about, about yourself, Mr. Waugh. I personally remember being told back in the early 1980s when I was a young manager at the bank's 44 King Street West head office that there was a rising star in the ranks and that one day, one day, Rick Waugh would become the CEO of the Bank of Nova Scotia. What no one ever talked about back then uh, was legacy, and this is uh, where even the most skilled pundits could not have foreseen Mr. Waugh's future path of success. In an era where so many uh, end their career in the financial sector amid confusion and sometimes even crisis and chaos, Mr. Waugh leaves his decade at the helm with Scotiabank in better shape than ever. And this is indeed an achievement that he can and should be proud of, and I'm sure that all his colleagues in the room today are extremely grateful for this. Uh, To put it in in your own words, you got risk management right. So uh, Mr. Waugh, as you prepare to step down from this successful tenure, there's certainly going to be many dinners, speeches, and all kinds of special events that will mark your achievements. But we at the Empire Club are honored and proud that you opened our 2013-2014 season today with your visit. And uh, shared with us some of the reasons why Scotiabank can look forward to at least another 181 years of successful operations, both here at home and around the entire world. So, beha- on behalf of the Board of Directors of Canada's oldest club of record, please accept our gratitude and our best wishes as you prepare to transition to the next chapter. Thank you very much.
0: And as a token of our appreciation, we'd like to give you this book, um, which is 100 Years of Speeches of the Empire Club. Notes, quotes, and anecdotes. Who said that? Thank you. Finally, I'd like to thank Faskin Martineau for sponsoring our event today and for Scotiabank for sponsoring the student table. I'd also like to thank the National Post as our print media sponsor and to Van Valkenburg for our technical support and AV. This meeting will be carried and aired on Rogers TV, and we are always grateful to them for their ongoing support. We are now on Twitter and Facebook, and becoming a member of our club is very easy. Please visit us on our website at www.empireclub.org. Thank you all for coming. We look forward to seeing you again soon. This meeting of the Empire Club of Canada is now adjourned.